0: Podcasters, after a delay owing to the obvious, welcome to a bumper edition of the Banking Litigation Podcast, covering both March and April developments in our banking litigation world. Fans of the show will be aware that this is our first podcast since going into lockdown, so hopefully it will run smoothly. I know a few of us on the line in particular, Kerry and I, are both quite relieved that this is in audio form only, having been caught out in recent days by Spaniels, children, angry spouses, and this morning a loo plunger making appearances on camera uh, with um, clients. Uh, We're joined this morning by, as ever, Alice behind the glass, running the technology. Good morning, Alice. We're getting away from Alice. And Manat Sabiki, an associate from our banking litigation team who's currently steeped in a significant amount of banking litigation, so straight from the office floor to the podcast floor. I'm going to kick off this morning with a mis-selling case, taking us back to events which took place during the global financial crisis of 2008. That's right, you heard it correctly. Interesting to see that these cases are still working their way through the courts some 12 years later. The case I'm looking at is Norum against Lloyds, uh, a case centred around the alleged mis-selling of interest rates, interest rate hedging products or IRHPs, very familiar to a lot of our podcasters. And as many of you will be aware, after the global financial crisis, uh, a number of the banks agreed with the then FSA to carry out a past business review of the sale of IRHPs, uh, in particular into allegations of mis-selling. Anyway, practitioners will recall that there's been a series of cases where claimant customers have sought to impose various duties on the bank relating to the conduct of their past business reviews.
1: If memory serves me correctly, John, that particular line of argument has not fared very well.
0: No, indeed, Kerry, that's right. Uh, Ultimately, those cases, uh, I'm thinking here of CGL as one of them, and Sure Mime is another, have all been unsuccessful. And this latest decision, Norum against Lloyds, uh, continues the trend. It's obviously good news for the banks and demonstrates the robust approach that the English court continues to take in rejecting these type of novel claimant arguments and mis-selling claims. So to drill into this a bit, the specific question here was whether the bank, Lloyds, owed an implied contractual duty to assess or compensate consequential loss claims under the PBR. In other words, whether the, the, the fact of the bank undertaking the PBR gave rise to some implied contractual duties. I don't think it's helpful to get into the weeds of the contractual construction points analysed in the judgment. The key point to pull out is this. It was absolutely central to the court's decision in rejecting the argument that if the PBR gave rise to a direct duty owed by the bank to the customer, it would completely cut across the regulatory regime under which the PBR was established.
1: Which is in line with what the court has said before, I believe.
0: Yes, precisely. Uh, That's right, Kerry. In in particular, two important previous authorities, which went all the way to the Court of Appeal, and that's CGL, which I've already mentioned, and uh, elite properties, uh, for those who are interested, um, have seen this argument being run before. So it means that whilst nothing in this recent decision is surprising, it does serve to reiterate that the court will be reluctant to find that uh, the banks undertook any private law duties in the context of the PBR, absent clear expression of intention to do so.
2: John, do you think this logic could apply to PBRs more generally?
0: I think that's a very good question, Manat, because we've seen that the argument will be run again and again. It may well do, um, given the reasoning of the court in this case. It may extend PBRs entered into voluntary by agreement with the FCA and Section 404 of uh, FISMA, Consumer Redress Schemes.
2: Am I right in thinking that we have a blog post on the decision, which has further detail?
0: Right again, Manat. There's a link in the show notes. Oh, I am very glad to be back. Look, now moving on to our next topic of class actions, Kerry, I understand that you're going to do a deep dive on Morrisons, which again will be very familiar to our podcasters, and then Manat's going to walk us through a couple of recent cases that might rock the boat for litigation funders.
1: Yes, absolutely. So I've selected for the deep dive in this edition of the podcast the Supreme Court's decision in Morrison's. And the big news is that Morrison's has won its Supreme Court appeal and it's been found not to be vicariously liable for the actions of a rogue employee in leaking employee data. So to put all of that into a bit of context, I'll give a very brief recap on the fact of the case. The case arose from the actions of a former Morrison's employee who was found guilty of stealing and unlawfully sharing the personal data of almost 100,000 of Morrison's employees. That data was shared with members of the press and with data sharing websites. Uh, and in the end, around 5,000 Morrison's employees brought, brought a claim for damages against the supermarkets on the basis that Morrison's was vicariously liable for the criminal acts of its employee.
2: Did the claimants suffer any financial loss? No,
1: interestingly, the
2: claim was brought on
1: the basis of the distress caused to the relevant employees. So it's pretty ambitious from the start. But having said that, the High Court and the Court of Appeal both found that Morrisons was vicariously liable for the former employees' deliberate actions. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court, which concluded that vicarious liability was, in fact, not established in this case.
0: It's quite an interesting chronology, Kerry. Can you tell us why the Supreme Court came to a different outcome from the High Court and Court of Appeal?
1: I will do my best. Um, you can check out the blog post on this for a bit more detail. There's a link in the show notes if, if you want. But essentially, it came down, of course, to how the courts applied the principles of vicarious liability. And the key case here is Dubai Aluminium and Salam. And what Dubai Aluminium says is that an employee's wrongful conduct must have been done in the ordinary course of his or her employment for the employer to be vicariously liable. So the wrongful act impact must be closely connected, and those are the keywords here, with the act uh, that the employee was authorised to do. In the Morrisons case, the employee was pursuing a personal vendetta against the company, and so releasing a whole load of personal data to the press was clearly not what he had been employed by Morrisons to do. It wasn't sufficient that his job gave him the opportunity to commit the wrongful act. He was off, uh, in the classic phrase, on a frolic of his own, uh, for which Morris, Morrisons should not be liable, and therefore the close connection test was not met.
0: Uh, I'm sure be besides the relief, because this actually had the potential to increase significantly the risk for financial institutions and other corporates if it had gone the other way, And what do you think this means from a class actions perspective?
1: Well, yeah, you're absolutely right on the risks point, John. And this judgment represents good news for financial institutions and institutions generally. Um, Although, of course, these cases will all turn on the specific back pattern. So it doesn't close the door on data breach class actions. In terms of impact, uh, it's clear that data breach class actions are on the rise in the UK. And so this judgment, I would say, is more of a setback than a roadblock.
0: Yes, indeed. I know funders and claimant firms are still looking uh, to build class actions in relation to data breaches, which I think brings us rather neatly on to the next couple of cases, which Manat's going to cover, looking here at the liabilities and obligations of litigation funders who decide to back such claims. Manat, a couple of recent decisions from you, please.
2: That's right. Thanks, John. Uh, The first case I have is Chapelgate versus Money from the Court of Appeal. The reason this decision is significant in the context of litigation funding is that it confirms that the so-called ARKIN cap is not a binding rule.
0: Uh, The ARKIN cap, of course, uh, coming from the case of ARKIN and borchardt Lines, I think May 2005, 15-year-old decision. Perhaps you can remind us what that was about.
2: Yes, happy to. ARKIN looked at a litigation funder's liability to pay the defendant's costs in circumstances where the funder had backed a claim, which ultimately failed. And the outcome of Arcane was that the litigation funder's liability was capped at the amount of funding it had provided to the claimant. In the present case, the claimant brought various claims against the defendants with the benefit of litigation funding provided by the commercial funder, Chapelgate. The claims failed in their entirety, and the claimant was ordered to pay the defendant's costs on an indemnity basis. However, the claimant didn't pay up, so the defendants applied for a non-party costs order against Chapelgate, the funder. The court said quite clearly that judges are not bound to adopt the Arkin approach when determining the extent of a commercial funder's liability for costs. The judge's decision on liability for costs is, in the end, discretionary, and there's no principle that there should be a fixed gap.
1: Yeah, I think it's really helpful to have some court of appeal authority on this point. Banks are so often in the position of a defendant facing a funded claim, particularly in a class actions
2: context. So good
1: news, I think.
2: Agreed, Kerry. And we have a blog post on this decision for anyone who would like further detail.
0: Of course, the litigation funding market has moved on uh, quite a bit since May 2005 when Arkham was decided. And it's interesting to see how the court's approach has adapted um, Mana, I think you've got another case um, relevant for us that moves things forward a bit.
2: That's right, John. The next case I have is Roe versus Ingenious Media, which was a security for costs application, again in the context of a litigation funder-backed claim. In a nutshell, the court granted an order for security for costs against the funder, Ethereum. The reason I'm flagging this decision is because a litigation funder's exposure to a defendant's costs really is key in the context of class actions.
0: No, I agree with that, and um, Our podcasters will be aware that this is not the first case in which this type of order has been made. But are there any particular features which stand out? Sorry to keep interrupting.
2: No worries, John. I think the most novel aspect of this decision is that the first successful security application against a member of the Association of Litigation Funders, or the ALF, which is a self-regulated body of funders, imposing capital adequacy requirements on its members. This decision shows that membership of the ALF will not provide any sort of shield for funders. Otherwise, the court took a similar approach to security applications as in the RBS rights issue litigation case. It was a significant factor in both cases that if the claims failed, the claimants would each be liable for only a proportion of the defendant's costs, as there was an an order in place for several rather than joint liability. The court also put particular weight on the fact that there had been no evidence provided of the funders, in this case Ethereum's financial position.
1: So what would you say is the key impact of the decision from a defendant bank's perspective?
2: I would say firstly that it should provide some further comfort to banks against the risk of successfully defending group litigation and then being unable to recover costs from the losing claimant side. And secondly, it is possible that the decision will have a knock-on effect on the volume of claims litigation funders will back. Funders will almost certainly need to factor in early financial exposure that an order for security for costs would cause. It could affect the merits threshold applied by litigation funders when deciding whether to pursue a claim. And it could be that financial institutions see this impact the volume of funded claims they face.
0: Thank you for that. Uh, Manat and um, of course as ever we have a blog post on this decision and there's a link uh, in the show notes. Next uh, we'll be following on from last month's big news story on JET2 and CAA um, in particular the new dominant purpose test in legal advice uh, privilege with a look at this privilege in the context of document compulsion by a regulator. Kerry you're putting on the snorkel and the goggles and doing a deep dive into this case.
1: Uh, yeah, of course. Um, so the case I have is Sports Direct and FRC, uh, a court of appeal decision on privilege, which is decidedly good news for financial institutions.
0: Continuing the theme of this morning's podcast.
1: Uh, yeah, actually, I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, you may remember from the High Court's decision in this case that the FRC was investigating the conduct of Grant Thornton in relation to its audit of Sports Direct. And although the investigation was into Grant Thornton and not Sports Direct, uh, the FRC used its statutory powers of compulsion to request documents relating to the audit uh, directly from Sports Direct. Those documents included certain emails between Sports Direct and its legal advisors and were therefore legally privileged, with the privilege belonging to Sports Direct and not to Grant Thornton. The question was whether Sports Direct could withhold the documents from the FRC on the grounds of legal professional privilege. Or, phrased another way, uh, where the privilege belonged to the client and not to the regulated person under investigation, could those documents be withheld from the regulator on the grounds of the client's privilege? In the High Court, the court worryingly concluded that the production of Sports Direct documents to the FRC would not infringe Sports Direct's privilege. Happily, the Court of Appeal has now overturned that decision.
2: Kerry, what was the key concern from a financial services perspective with the High Court decision?
1: I think I think the biggest concern for the banks was the very real possibility of a single regulator scenario, so such as the FCA in relation to both parties. So taking an example, you, you, it's quite easy to imagine a scenario where there's an FCA investigation into the issue of securities by a listed financial institution, which has been advised by an investment bank. So both there would be regulated by the FCA and the effect of the High Court's decision in such a scenario was that the investment bank's privileged documents may have been disclosable to the FCA even if it's the issuer which is the target of the investigation.
2: Did the High Court suggest any safeguards for situations like that where there's a single regulator?
1: No, uh, the High Court didn't think about that potential scenario at all, no.
0: But what about in the financial services context? Wouldn't the privilege carve out in section 413 of in relation to compelled documents have come to the rescue?
1: That's a good point, John. But the, the problem with the High Court's decision was that there was, um, sim- it found there was simply no infringement of privilege at all. So, on that basis, the carve out wouldn't have been relevant. And plus, in any event, the High Court was willing to give the equivalent statutory carve out in the FRC context a very narrow reading if necessary.
0: I see. So the Court of Appeals decision really is good news from a financial services perspective, in keeping with this morning's theme.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And of course, we have a blog post on this decision. If you want more detail, link is in the show notes.
0: It sounds like we can breathe a sigh of relief that the um, unfortunate High Court uh, judgment's been overturned. Um, To move on to our final segment uh, for this month, I don't think we can have a, a podcast without mentioning the C word. So I'm going to mention briefly COVID 19. Uh, I'm very conscious that many of you podcasters out there will have mailboxes bursting with legal briefings uh, relating to the pandemic. Um, What we've done uh, rather than bombard you is we've collated our latest thinking and insights into a COVID 19 crisis hub. Uh, In particular, we have briefings on recent High Court decisions, looking at adjournments and remote hearings, and some analysis on force majeure considerations in a potential second wave of COVID 19. We've also thought about the impact of the virus on class actions in the UK, so if any of those themes sound relevant to you, please do check out the Hub and there's a link in the show notes. Podcasters, we've missed you. Um, I hope that we've been able to shine some light into your studies this morning. As ever, it wouldn't be the same without your comments, uh, so please do keep them coming in. It won't be long, I promise you until you're back on that Melbourne commute or that Fountainbridge coffee shop or in that Chambers drinks party again. But look, until then, um, my thank you to Alice behind the glass for making all this happen uh, and to our guest speaker, Manat. And thank you, Kerry, who has us some news. Kerry's just been promoted at Smith Three Hills into the role of professional support consultant. So congratulations, Kerry. Thanks, John. Speak soon, everybody, and keep well. And bye from all of us.